All right. So we'll begin with Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them, the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness and it is night, in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great. There the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. These all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to him. I will be glad in the Lord. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. I hope that it's obvious um, in considering a doctrine of uh, the the power of God is really what it is. Uh, That psalm. Um, speaks directly to God's power in all of his creation. But I wanted to share um, a little bit of my own interest, where my interest was sparked in the doctrine of God's providence, where it came from. And really, it came, uh, a question occurred to me once, uh, many years ago, um, is redemption plan B? Was God surprised when he walked into the garden one day and discovered that Adam and Eve had transgressed, had sinned and broken his commandment? Was that a surprise? Did he then have to figure out what to do with his creation? I guess now I'll have to go 
orchestrate salvation and redemption. Uh, that didn't seem to ring true at all, and I, I, it piqued my interest. I started thinking, um, you know, how can God, who is holy, righteous, and good, apparently turn what is evil to his own glory? How does that happen? And it seemed to me that if God is consistent, if he's eternal, if he's immutable or unchanging in all his attributes, then he must be manifesting some greater glory by ruling over or overruling sin in order to accomplish redemption than could be accomplished by avoiding, disallowing, or obliterating it from his creation. And I wanted to share something I came across that emphasized that point to me. In 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, Peter is talking about the salvation we have received and heard from prophets and apostles. And he says this, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Peter says there that the angels desire to look into salvation, into redemption, that there is mysteries bound up in redemption. And as, um, as Dan alluded to and, and talked about last week, redemption carries with it uh, a message of judgment. So through judgment and through redemption, God is declaring something particular to us, his new creation, that even angels don't get to participate in. They witness and they glory in it, but we participate in it. How glorious is that? So at this point, you might be asking, what does any of this have to do with providence? Well, providence is a theological doctrine that describes how God does it, how God accomplishes that through providence. We readily see in Scripture God's promises, his prophecies about, um, or excuse me, his, uh, his promises and prophecies um, about what will happen in the future. We see in Scripture the record of God's actions in history. Um, most everyone is in agreement on those things. Christians from all, all uh, you know, camps and um, sects are in agreement about all, many of those things. Maybe just some disagreement uh, on timing and interpretation of things. But we all agree. God declares what he's done and declares what he will do. Uh, but there's much disagreement about how God does it. Um, and the relationship he takes with his creation as he does so. Um, and a right understanding of providence unfolds to us a part of that surpassing glory of redemption. It allows us, the recipients and participants of redemptive history, to worship God more accurately. It describes to us how God brings all this about in a world he created, a world persisting in open rebellion against him. So, what is providence? A quick uh, definition. There's, there's no single definition, really. Um, it has been described by many people, but for now, we'll, I'll, I'll give a few more definitions and confessions that describe it different ways in a little bit. But uh, Louis Burkhoff described providence as that continued exercise of the divine energy 
whereby the Creator preserves all His creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. Scripture itself doesn't use the word providence. It uses many uh, words that describe God's actions, His conduct in creation, but it doesn't use the word providence. Um, A couple of quick examples of how it describes what we're talking about, the doctrine of providence. One comes from Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. That preservation word, that language is um, very much a part of God's providence and we'll get into more of that uh, in just a little bit. Um, In Psalm 66... And as well, Psalm 104 that that I read um, is a wonderful psalm that declares God's power in his creation, his work in his creation, uh, very much describing his providence. Um, Psalm 66, 5 through 7. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nation's. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. We see there how God governs all his creation, and in particular, um, the sons of men. Um, see Revelation 19. I'm going to be flipping around quite a bit on some things. No need to follow along, but you may certainly do so. Um, again, this is scripture de- describing the government, how God governs his creation. In Revelation 19, verses 15 through 16. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We also see God ruling over even the wicked acts, orchestrating evil for his purposes. In Genesis 50, verses 19 through through 20, this is Joseph, the famous and well-known verse. Let me find it. Uh, Verses 19 through 20. Joseph said to them, to his brothers, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. His brothers had betrayed him and sold him into slavery, and God had used that, orchestrated it. We can even say he caused it in order to bring about his purposes. We'll get into more of that in the coming weeks because there is danger in how people interpret those things. 
Acts 3, 11 through 18. As Peter is preaching, after Peter, uh, they heal a lame man. That was the, uh, the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? As though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of all. And yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But these things, those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Again, God works and orchestrates even acts of evil to accomplish his purposes. What is this great mystery? Scripture also uses words to depict what we know as providence. Um, uses words like creating, make, making alive, renewing, seeing, observing, saving, protecting, preserving, leading, teaching, ruling, working, upholding, and caring. There are many words that describe the acts of God. Now, why study God's providence? What We could just say that God is sovereign over all things. He is Lord of his creation, and that's true. Um, but why study providence? What is the, the interest there? Um, again, the continued exercise of divine energy, as Burkhoff says, whereby the Creator preserves all creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. Uh, what is the benefit to us to study these things? Um, and there is much, but a few... Uh, points to consider we can uh, it gives us when we understand how god works in the world we can have a greater assurance and faith in the promises of god Uh, if we know that he is active if he is preserving all things if he's governing all things as they come to pass uh, directing them to their appointed ends we can have great confidence in the promises of god and hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 through 18 We get a sense of this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the uh, immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of this hope set before us. It is impossible for God to lie. And so the things that he says are true. When God declares that things will come to pass, they will come to pass. Again, a particular word of hope 
from Scripture for God's people in Romans 8, 28 through 30, that we can, a promise that we, that encourages us and that we can cling to, especially uh, knowing how he works in his world and governs it. Romans 8, 28 through 30, again, famous statement. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. How can Christians take that more than just to affirm and assent to that statement as an intellectual truth and have confidence daily that God is doing that in us and all of his creation every day in our brothers and sisters in, in our church in the church in the world God is doing that how can we have confidence how can we see that and observe it uh, and think about it how ought to we how ought we to think about it um, confidence we can also have confidence studying God's providence that God is at work in history and in world events. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Psalm 2, the first few verses there, the the famous, why do the nations rage psalm? Um, Nations striving in vain, uh, trying to throw off the decrees of God, the work of God, and to be be in rebellion against him. Uh, It says that God will laugh. I want to read a passage what we're describing through providence is a fundamental power of God Um, and we could describe it even as the very Godhood of God what does it mean that he is God and I want to read uh, a passage this is a, a, a pamphlet uh, called the Free Grace Broadcaster, um, which Dan and Glenn uh, told me about Free Grace Broadcaster. It's a, a resource. They put out all kinds of uh, pamphlets on different topics. A lot of Puritan writers, they, they put together collected works on different topics, 50-page pamphlets or so. And this one on Providence I've used quite a bit, and I'll refer to quite a bit. But this is Arthur Pink um, describing the godhood of God. What is meant by the expression, this, the omnipotence of God, the absolute sovereignty of God. When we speak of the Godhood of God, we affirm that God is God. We affirm that God is something more than an empty title, that God is something more than a mere figurehead, that God is something more than a far distant spectator looking helplessly on at the suffering that sin has wrought. When we speak of the Godhood of God, we affirm that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords as it says in 1 Timothy 6.15. We affirm that God is something more than a disappointed, dissatisfied, defeated being who is filled with benevolent desires, but lacking in power to carry them out. When we speak of the Godhood of God, we affirm that he is, quote, the Most High, Acts 7.48. We affirm that God is something more than one who has endowed man with the power of choice, and because he has done this, is therefore unable to compel man to do his bidding. We affirm that God is something more than one who has waged 
a protracted war with the devil and has been worsted. When we speak of the Godhood of God, we affirm that he is the Almighty. To speak of the Godhood of God, then, is to say that God is on the throne, on the throne as a fact and not as a say-so, on a throne that is high above all. To speak of the Godhood of God is to say that the helm is in his hand and that he is steering according to his own good pleasure. To speak of the Godhood of God is to say that he is the potter, that we are the clay, and that out of the clay he shapes one as a vessel to honor and another as a vessel to dishonor, according to his own sovereign rights. Romans 9.21 It is to speak of the divine despot doing according, quote, according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Daniel 4.35 Therefore, to speak of the Godhood of God is to give the mighty creator his rightful place. It is to recognize his exalted majesty. It is to own his universal scepter. Much of that is the language that is used uh, to describe and discuss the doctrine of God's providence. Um, And so all of that is kind of the foundation. Um, What is um, underneath what we can expect, uh, what we are discussing and describing as we uh, deal with the doctrine of God's providence. But I want to emphasize that we proceed uh, and that I proceed with reverence and with caution. Um, God defines his own person and his works. We do not do so. Um, And we do not attempt to construct uh, a human philosophy that makes sense of all that God does and a system that can describe um, in detail and be consistent um, when we do so, uh, when we hold on to our systems and to our philosophies in an attempt to put God in a box, um, we go into error. And so there are mysteries in the providence of God. Uh, there is much that, that uh, is difficult to resolve in the human uh, mind, the natural mind, much less uh, a regenerate mind. These are challenging things, mysteries of God. So we, we want to take what Scripture says as true and go no further. Uh, we, we may be left with questions. Um, that's great. We should question. We should seek after the mysteries of God. Uh, and yet, uh, we rest on what Scripture says. Uh, where Scripture is silent, we, we, want to, we do not want to speculate. Um, my goal is to break absolutely no new ground. Say nothing theologically new. <laughs> um, uh, I want to... Rest in what scripture says. Um, I'm using, as I described, the free grace broadcaster. That's a helpful resource. I'm also using, uh, relying heavily on um, Herman Bovink's Reformed Dogmatics. Um, Bovink was a Dutch uh, Calvinist um, theologian and um, preacher. I'm also using um, much of what I'll be doing in the study after this week is tracking with and going through the Westminster Confessions just discussion on providence. Um, chapter 5 of the Confession uh, has wonderful truths um, there for us to consider. And I'm, I'll basically be tracking along with uh, the Westminster Confession in coming weeks. Um, and I'll be using as well A.A. Uh, uh, a. Hodge's um, commentary on the Confession, which has been a wonderful resource as I've um, studied these things. Um, so that's the plan as we go forward. Um, And I want to spend a little bit of time giving, uh, again, a little bit of background on on providence. Again, as I I said, providence, the word, doesn't occur in Scripture. We have many words that describe uh, the works of God and what he's doing. 
uh, that we have come to understand as, as providence. Um, but where did the word providence come from? How did, we, how did it come to this point? Um, Bavink discusses the history of the word providence, how the church came to use it. It actually came from philosophy. Plato was apparently the first to use the word, and by it he described foreknowledge, to the foreknowledge or foresight uh, of a thing. Um, early church fathers took over the word, gave it theological legitimacy, and, and grew it and filled it out over time. Uh, but categorizing the doctrine of providence uh, was and is uh, challenging. Uh, what is it discussing? What part of God's uh, of, of the theology of God is it describing? Uh, early on, it, it, it still referred to for knowledge, um, but that was insufficient to really deal with all the things that that it described. Um, that only deals with for knowledge is only discussing the knowledge of God. So that has to do with His attributes, His knowledge. Uh, but there's more going on in providence that we want to deal with than that can contain. Um, John of Damascus, who lived uh, in the 7th and 8th centuries, um, described providence as that will of God by which all things exist, uh, excuse me, all existing things, receive suitable guidance through to their end. That's talking about the will or decree of God. Uh, that, again, is another, another area that's not quite uh, describing everything we mean by providence and want to discuss in that topic. And so it... it came to be understood and is now understood uh, providence as an omnipotent act of God. Providence is an act of God uh, encompassing uh, his preservation and his government of all that he created. And so how uh, now do uh, is that defined or discussed or described? Uh, so I want to read to you a few different definitions or descriptions of providence um, that uh, are different in different ways um, but all helpful. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism says, Providence is uh, the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his right hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 10, question and answer 27. The Belgic Confession says, We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will, in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. That's Article 13 of the Belgic Confession. Uh, the Westminster Confession, uh, we'll be going through, uh, excuse me, this is the Catechism. Um, the Westminster Confession will be going through, kind of to track the doctrine. But the question, uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 18, says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. Thomas Watson describes providence as... God's ordering all issues and events of things after the counsel of his will to his own glory. I, Thomas Watson, call providence God's ordering of things to distinguish it from his decrees. God's decree ordains things that shall fall out. God's providence ordereth them. I call providence the ordereth the ordering of things after the counsel of God's will. God ordereth all events of things after the counsel of his own will to his own glory. 
the glory of God being the ultimate end of all God's actions and the center where all the lines of providence do meet. The providence of God is the queen and governess of the world. It is the eye that sees and the hand that turns all the wheels in the universe. That, I think, is a wonderful description of all that's going on in, in providence. Um, Bavink defines and describes providence simply as that act of God by which from moment to moment he preserves and governs all things. So what we're dealing with is an act of God, the works of God. Uh, There are many works of God which flow from and by his providence. All his works after creation can rightly be described as works of providence by which God executes and carries out his eternal decrees. But so the doctrine of God's providence, it's not, it is discussing the acts of God, but not only the acts. One of the interesting things, Bobbing describes it, and I think that this is right, describes uh, and discusses the many works of providence, but it, the doctrine of providence particularly focuses on describing the relation in which God stands toward his creatures a relation that remains the same in all his various works. So when God is working, how is he working? How is he relating to his people? How is he relating to his creation? Um, a fallen creation. How is, he, uh, how is he, what relationship is he taking and in which is he standing uh, towards his creation as he works to bring about his decrees? And so I think um, a way that we can think about this Uh, There is a broad uh, sense in which we can discuss providence. And I think here it will be helpful if I kind of write on the board. So that will be interesting and fun. Um, So in a broad sense, providence entails and involves um, uh, an internal act of God. And I, I get this from, again, from Bob Inc., relying heavily on him. An internal act of God, uh, which includes his foreknowledge, as well as a purpose. You have trouble writing and talking at the same time. purpose or proposed end Uh, this aspect is discussed as the decrees of God a decree God's eternal decree and the confession Westminster confession discusses this in chapter 3 Apologize for my handwriting. Chapter 3 of the Confession deals with that aspect. Again, we're we're looking at what does God's providence mean in a broad sense. Uh, Then there is an external act of God, which has been completed. That is His creation. On the seventh day, God rested. He rested from all the work of creation. Um, On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day.
from all his work which he had done. So creation has been completed. That act has been <clears throat> finished. And God is resting from his creation. So created. Uh, the confession deals with this in uh, chapter 4. Then there is his external acts that are ongoing. And this is what is commonly called providence. This is the, the aspect, the part of God's providence in a narrow sense that we'll be discussing and that the confession deals with in chapter 5. Um, so all of this is part of God's providence. He decrees things that will come to pass. He created all the things that he will use to bring it all to pass. Um, that work is completed. He's not creating, uh, creating things anymore. Um, but now he's engaged in the acts of providence. Um, and what we'll be dealing with, uh, what the confession describes and talks about, um, this being providence in a narrow sense, contained within that are God's preservation His government. God governs all things. And the idea of concurrence. That um, concurrence deals with how God relates to um, the nature and attributes of his creation uh, as he acts. Um, and that has to deal with second causes. Uh, the doctrine of second causes that we'll, we'll get into. Um, and so this is our particular interest um, as we go forward in the coming weeks. Uh, we won't be dealing with his eternal decrees. Uh, we won't be dealing with his creation. Um, but we will be discussing uh, uh, with the Westminster Confession um, God's providence as he preserves and governs all things. Um, and the concurrence uh, idea, how he uses and relates to second causes um, and the means by which uh, he accomplishes his work. Um, so providence describes uh, a, a unified, almighty, and omnipresent power that God exercises, an act, an act of God. And then these are the three aspects of God's providence. Um, and very briefly, I kind of said what they are, but again, very briefly... Um, and we'll get into it more in, in coming weeks. Um, preservation is the idea that nothing exists unless it exists totally from, through, and to God. Uh, that's the idea of preservation. He preserves all things. Um, government, God's work, sovereignly guides all things in such a way that the final goal determined by God will be reached. Concurrence, God's work does not suspend the existence of creatures uh, or their natures that he's given them. Um, but it affirms and maintains their existence and their natures. Uh, that's the idea of concurrence. Um, okay, and we're just about... Let's see, is that clock correct? Is my watch correct? Yes. So we're coming up on time, but I wanted to conclude um, reading a, a passage from Bavink that 
was a little long, but I think a fitting way to conclude um, for today, kind of the, our introduction in, um, of the idea. So what does it mean for us, um, the Christian? We can Unbelievers can affirm ideas of providence, and we'll talk about that later. There are um, pagan ideas that describe what is going on with providence. Um, there, are, um, there are other ways to think about uh, providence, but how can Christians, what are Christians saying when we declare that we believe in the doctrine of the providence of God? What does that mean to us? Christian belief in God's providence is a source of consolation and hope, of trust and courage, of humility and resignation. In Scripture, belief in God's providence is absolutely not based solely on God's revelation in nature, but much more on His covenant and promises. It rests not only on God's justice, but above all on His compassion and grace, and it presupposes the knowledge of sin much more profoundly than is in the case of, uh, than is the case in paganism but also the experience of God's forgiving love. It is not a cosmological speculation, but a glorious confession of faith. In the case of the Christian, believing God's providence is not a tenet of natural theology to which saving faith is later mechanically added. Instead, it is is saving faith that for the first time prompts us to believe wholeheartedly in God's providence in the world, to see its significance, and to experience its consoling power. Belief in God's providence, therefore, is an article of the Christian faith. For the natural human being, so many objections can be raised against God's cosmic government that one can only adhere to it with difficulty. But the Christian has witnessed God's special providence at work in the cross of Christ and experienced it in the forgiving and regenerating grace of God, which has come to one's own heart. And from the vantage point of this new and certain experience in one's own life, The Christian believer now surveys the whole of existence and the entire world and discovers in all things, not chance or fate, but the leading of God's fatherly hand. It is above all by faith in Christ that believers are enabled, in spite of all the riddles that perplex them, to cling to the conviction that the God who rules the world is the same loving and compassionate Father who in Christ forgave them all their sins, accepted them as His children, and will bequeath to them eternal blessedness. In that case, faith in God's providence is no illusion, but secure and certain. It rests on the revelation of God in Christ and carries within it the conviction that nature is subordinate and serviceable to grace, and the world is likewise subject to the kingdom of God. Thus, all through, its, through all its tears and suffering, it looks forward with joy to the future. Although the riddles are not resolved, faith in God's fatherly hand always again arises from the depths and even enables us to boast in afflictions. That has been my experience and my testimony as I have considered and meditated on the providence of God for, uh, in, in different ways, several years. Um, I think we can all look back on the last couple of years and see much tumult in the world, much uncertainty, much chaos. Um, And yet we have these glorious hopes 
and promises in Scripture. How can we cling to those things? What does it mean for us to cling to the promises of God? To declare our faith that God is ruling and governing. Not the, not the petty tyrants. Not, uh, not even our own sinful flesh is ruling. But God is ruling. What does it mean to declare that? And how is God acting in all these things? That's the subject of God's providence that I'm very excited to be discussing and sharing over the next few weeks. Um, so with that, um, it's about 20 till, so I'll go ahead and close in prayer. If you guys have questions, if, if you all have questions, feel free to, to ask um, after we're done. And if I don't know, I'll punt and say I'll look it up and uh, bring it back later. But um, let's pray uh, and prepare for worship. Lord God, we again declare that you are a creator, you are Lord, you are God over all things. Uh, and as, as the God that created all things, you, uh, you have a right and a power over your creation. And yet creation is in rebellion against you. Lord, we find in ourselves, as your people regenerate, even in a rebellion in our flesh that lingers. But Lord, we, you have purchased by the blood of Christ. And you say by, in your word that you have made us new. And so we, your double creation, have every interest in meditating on and considering your power, your glory, your works in creation. Lord, we desire that our faith would increase as we study the doctrine of providence. We desire that your word would be upheld that your purposes would come to pass, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And even in our own hearts, that we would be brought into alignment uh, with your word, that we would love what you love, that we would hate what you hate, that we would see the world as you see it. And Lord, experience the joy that comes along with that and the assurance, the surpassing peace of God. Lord, as we prepare to, to enter into corporate worship, we ask that you would prepare our hearts. Let us set aside uh, and enable us to set aside the labors and cares of the week uh, to keep your day holy and that we would uh, be taken up with the things of God as we worship, as we hear the preaching, um, and that your spirit would move and affect us in mighty ways, that you would accomplish all that your word, uh, that you send your word out to do. And we pray all of this, in the name of Christ, amen.